one of the things that gets us in trouble, this gets pastors in trouble, it gets us in trouble in our marriages, is unmet expectations. And sometimes those expectations, they're created in all kinds of ways. When I was a kid, uh, we, you know, I watched a lot of Disney movies. My mom would take us to any new Disney movie that came out. And, and uh, you know, many of the Disney movies always end with, and they lived happily ever after. You know, you, you, the, the, there, there's all kinds of conflict, there's all kinds of struggles, and, and whether it was a prince and a princess, or, or, you know, whether it was an ogre and an ogre princess, or whatever it happens to be, uh, you know, they would come together, and, and once they came together and either had that magnificent fairy tale wedding or that fairy tale kiss, then the story was over, right? Because from then on, it was bliss. Now, that's not just in our children's fairy tales. My wife loves to watch Hallmark Christmas movies, and there's only about five different uh, uh, plots in a Hallmark Christmas movie, and, 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 they, and they almost all end with that same kiss right at the end. And, you know, you know when that kiss comes, it's going to start snowing. As soon as they kiss, the beautiful snow begins to fall, and they're, they're, you, they don't, usually don't show the wedding, but they're going to live happily ever after, and that's the end, right? And that's what marriage is all about. Once we have the fairy tale wedding and we have the kiss, everything else is ease. Everything else is blissful. There's, there's never another struggle. There's never another a, a heartache. There's never an argument. You, you, you never see Shrek pressing the toothpaste in the middle, right? And his new bride getting angry at him about it because in the fairy tale weddings, they always must have a fairy tale marriage that comes after. Well, the truth we know is not that easy. And, and what it does is it sets us up for unmet expectations. I'm, I make a a, a effort when I do pre-marriage counseling to help young couples understand that that fairy tale wedding may be a beautiful, wonderful thing, but real life comes after that. Because if you can be prepared for the battles to come, it's a whole lot easier to deal with them. And, and so what gets us in trouble sometimes is when we get into that area, in marriage in particular, and our expectations are not met. You know, that you hear about, it. for pastors, they refer to the honeymoon period. The first six months to a year, the pastor's at a new church, he loves them, they love him, then they get to know each other. And they figure out that, that we have disagreements and, and everybody's not perfect. The new pastor isn't perfect and the church isn't perfect. Well, if you, if you, if you don't understand that up front, you're going to end up being disappointed with unmet expectations. I use those illustrations because that's a part of everyday life. Unreasonable, unmet, unfounded expectations will get us in trouble every time. And I believe that that's the greatest encumberment or, or, or struggle that the Jewish religious leaders had with Jesus. They expected one type of Messiah, and they got a different they expected him to be presented as one kind of king, and he was a different kind of king. And so, read with me. We're going to be continuing our study. We're going to overlap our reading a little bit this week. We're going to pick up in John 18, uh, the last half of verse 38. 
Last week, our primary focus that we ended with was Pilate's question, where is truth? We're going to pick up after that, and we're going to read through this story to the point where Jesus is condemned to be crucified in uh, verse 16 of chapter 19. So begin in 1838. The Scripture says, after he had said this, he went out to the Jews again, and he told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a revolutionary. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were slapping him on the face. Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no grounds to charge him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priest and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourselves. I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, Where are you from? And Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given to you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. But the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in a place called the Stone Pavement, but in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. Then he told the Jews, here's your king. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And then he handed him over to be crucified. There's a couple little things in this passage that I want to point out before we get into the, the, the primary part of the message uh, the first one is, is this. John, for the purposes of his writing, he does not go into detail uh, this torture that Jesus uh, lived through. John just simply says in, in chapter 19, verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And when you're reading through, especially you, you see that at the first of a chapter, it's real easy just to brush over that. There were, there were three different types of beatings uh, officially that the, a Roman governor or, or Roman ruler could give out that would be employed uh, by Roman soldiers. The first one was a, a, a lighter beating that was essentially uh, given to, to somebody of a lesser offense. That beating was to be given to let them know that what they did was wrong and they all not do it again. 
it, maybe not quite this light, but I kind of likened it to, uh, you remember, gosh, it's a couple decades ago now, just showing my age, there was a, a young American citizen in China who had put graffiti on the walls of a street uh, in an open public area and had been arrested for it, and he was caned for it. Uh, they, the, the government took a cane and uh, beat him across the back so many times. Uh, it was not to, to inflict I intense torture, but it was a beating uh, so that they would, he would remember it and not want to do it again, okay? Then you had this, the type of flogging that was kind of that, that, that second level, and this is what most scholars believe Pilate employed on Jesus. It was not designed to result in the prisoner's death. It was result to give great punishment, and that is the beating uh, with the 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails. Now, some historians tell us that some of those prisoners who received that beating would die from it because it was such a brutal beating, and oftentimes it was dependent upon the, the exuberance or the, the particular Roman uh, soldier who was enacting the punishment. And, and sometimes that beating would be so heavily uh, applied that, uh, that the person would die from it. And Jesus apparently received a pretty brutal beating because at this point, uh, that later that day, he was unable to, to even carry the cross beam of his cross up the hill. There was a third level in which uh, the governor would, would give a beating that its purpose was to result into the death of, of the, the one receiving the beating. That was not Pilate's purpose here, and that's why most scholars believe that, that Jesus received that beating with 39 lashes, with a cat of nine tails. The purpose for it, for, for Pilate, was to brutalize Jesus enough that he, he uh, at least satisfied the bloodthirst of these Jewish leaders. And you see that expressed in Pilate's continuing, his continual trial uh, are trying to let Jesus go. And so, there's a couple things that, that I want to walk through. With you. Oh, and, and then this crown of thorns that they put on his head, it also was a brutal, uh, it, it wasn't like they, they, they took a little, a few leaves and put it around Jesus's head like he was the victor or something. Uh, I told the first group, there was a time when I was a kid, I was working on, on my granddad's place, cutting down mesquite trees for him, and they were on a, a hillside and, and not being... I guess the brightest kid at that point, I couldn't get to the base of the mesquite tree from above, so I got down below it, and when I did, I got one of those mesquite thorns stuck right straight in the top of my head. Now, that thing hurt, but a mesquite thorn compared to these is nothing. Uh, the thorns that you see on the briars that were used on Jesus' head, and you've seen images of them, are, are two to two and a half inch long thorns that they made this crown, and John does not get into this, and, and this is kind of why I wanted to go down this road. John just brushes over it because this isn't John's primary purpose to, to describe the brutality of the beating. And we'll get to his primary purpose in, in the first main point. But what you need to understand is they, they put that crown of thorns on his head, and then the soldiers took wooden sticks and beat that crown into his head. So Jesus received a brutal, torturous beating at this point. John's primary purpose, I believe, as he lays this out, is to help us understand that Jesus was innocent. In fact, Jesus' innocence is even being proclaimed by the Roman governor, or Pilate, the, the leader who is going to allow him to be crucified. 
Because you read it here three times. Jesus, uh, Pilate says on three different occasions in, in John 8, 38 here, in verse 4, and in verse 6 of John 19, I don't find any grounds for charging him. Pilate comes out and says, he's innocent. There are no grounds for charging Jesus. And, and I believe that John wants us to understand that Jesus is who he says he is. He was God's son who was pure, God's son who was innocent. And John, as he writes this, is emphasizing that with Pilate's own words. And then he comes down in verse uh, 12 of chapter 19, and he says, uh, after Jesus had this little interaction with Pilate about his authority, the Scripture says in verse 12, from that moment on, Pilate kept trying to release him. Pilate was convinced that Jesus was innocent. He didn't have any grounds for charging him. There was nothing that Jesus had done wrong upon which he could hold him. But I want you to notice something that happens here, and, and, and this is incredible to me. Even though he was innocent, Pilate believed Jesus was innocent. Pilate still turned him over to his Roman guard to beat him nearly to the point of death. Well, why? Because Pilate's greatest concern was expedience. He wanted to take the easy way out. Pilate was put in place by the Roman government to rule over this area of Judea for a couple purposes. One, of course, he had authority to rule, to, to try to make good judgments, but one of the highest... Uh, priorities of the Roman government was peace. And Pilate's job was to keep the peace. So he had this unruly crowd of Jewish leaders, and, and, and he had Jesus. And so it was expedient for him to punish the one to satisfy the bloodthirst of the many. And so even though Pilate believed that Jesus was innocent and continually proclaimed Jesus's innocence, he still handed Jesus over for this brutal beating. Pilate's king, so to speak, his, his governing principle was what was easiest, was what was expedient. The second thing that I want you to see from this text is just how greatly Jesus suffered. Yes, he was flogged near to the point of death. He was, had a crown of thorns driven in his skull. He had his beard ripped from his face. He was slapped, he was mocked, he was spat upon, all of that before Pilate even gave sentence and ruled that he could be crucified. Why? Why did Jesus suffer that much? Was it because, you know, the Roman government was that powerful or was it because the the the, the Jews were, were that, that powerful to be able to force Pilate to do something? No. Jesus suffered that much because that was the plan of his heavenly Father from the very beginning, that he would suffer and die for you and me. That, what we're reading right here, was written about 750 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53. Let me read a little bit of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53. 750 years before, Isaiah wrote, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew 
what sickness was. He was like, some, like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. Now we were healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers. He did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of the oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck down because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death. Because he had done no violence, he was innocent. And he had spoken, had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see the light and be satisfied. What an incredible prophecy. 750 years before the story that we're reading, Isaiah predicted that he would be beaten for our sin, that he would, he would be pierced for our iniquities, as he receives the nails and the, 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 the spear in his side. Isaiah even predicted that, that this, this Messiah, though the Jews didn't expect this kind of Messiah, this Messiah would be killed and be assigned a grave among the wicked. In fact, that was Jesus' destination. Those who were crucified, their bodies would be taken down and they'd be tossed in the dump for their bodies to be burned. And, and Isaiah says, even though he'd been assigned a grave among the wicked, he will, he will die and he will be buried with a rich man at his death. 750 years before, the prophet Isaiah told us that Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb. This is the story that we're seeing fulfilled in John chapter 18 and 19. It wasn't because Jesus was too weak. It wasn't because uh, Pilate was too powerful, the Roman government was too powerful. It's because God had a plan that he sent his son to die on the cross, to suffer greatly, to, 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 to bear the scars that we deserve for our sin. Even the passage here that gets so often misused when, when Isaiah says that, that by his wounds we are healed. It is by those stripes that rip the flesh off his back, his suffering and his bleeding, that you and I can have our sins forgiven so that we can have everlasting life. That passage gets misused so often when you take it out of context and you misquote it. There's people who say, well, see, God never desired you to be sick. If, if you would just have enough faith, you'll never get sick. You'll, you'll, you'll never have to, have to struggle through those kind of tough times. That's a lie. I, I believe if that was true, you, you could shake hands with the Apostle Paul. There'd be 2,000-year-old Christians walking around. 
because he had enough faith. What Isaiah is talking about is you and I have sinned against God and we're destined for an eternal hell, separated from God. But the God who loves us sent his son to suffer just what we're reading in John chapter 18 and 19. And the very religious people who had been looking for the Messiah missed him because he wasn't what they expected. Jesus came to suffer and bleed and die for us, for all of us, so that we could have opportunity at eternal life. And they missed it because they were looking for a king that would come riding in on a white horse and provide some type of physical wealth, power, authority that they could rule over the world again. Jesus suffered greatly not so that we could just live a better life in this world. I believe that when we walk with the Lord, we have a better life in this world because we find the peace that comes in a relationship with God. But Jesus' purpose was so that we'd have everlasting life, eternal life. Third, what I want you to see from this text is nowhere, none of this takes away from the authority or the power of Christ. Jesus was, John wants us to understand that Jesus was God from the beginning. Jesus, when he, when he tells the authorities, I am the great I am, he, he wants us to, to understand that he is God. Jesus, uh, John says, in the beginning was, was, was there. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus was God. He was the King of kings and Lord of lords from before time. He was still the Lord when he was here on earth, even though he had set aside some of that authority. He even mentioned it in, la in what we read last week's message. He could have called down 72,000 angels to destroy that party that came to arrest him. He could have done it in a moment because he had all the authority to do that. He laid aside that authority so that he could give up his life for you and I to die on that cross so that if we would simply trust him, we could have everlasting life. He paid the price. He paid the penalty. He took our sin on his shoulders and died for you and I. But that did not at any point in any way take away from the fact that he is the king. He was the king of kings and lord of lords at the beginning of creation. He was the king of kings and lord of lords when he brought his people out of Egypt. He was the king of kings and lord of lords when he entered into the, the virgin's womb. He was the king when he died on the cross. He was the king when he rose from the grave. And he'll be the king when he comes back. And he is the king today. Jesus is and forever will be the king. And he emphasized that here when... when uh, the verse 6, 7, and 8, Pilate comes to him, and he, he goes out to the Jews, and he tells them to crucify him. And then they say, well, he made himself out to be the son of God. Well, that upsets Pilate. And there's an interesting thing here in this text, because Scripture says, when Pilate heard this statement in verse 8, he was more afraid than ever. Why did that freak Pilate out? Well, if you'll remember, we mentioned this last week, in the Synoptic Gospels, they mentioned that at some point when Pilate was dealing with Jesus, Pilate's wife came to him and said, don't have anything to do with that guy. I had a bad dream that freaked me out. Leave him alone. You don't, you don't crucify him. And so, th th thus Pilate's trying to take his hands off of the situation. But when Pilate heard Jesus claim to be the Son of God, I think Pilate intuitively knew on the inside something's going on here. He's more than what he, he looks like he is on the surface. 
And so Pilate begins to question him some more, and, and he says, you know, don't you understand that, that I have the power, I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And I think Jesus, if he didn't have a smirk on his face, he had a smirk in his heart when he said, you'd have no authority over me at all if it hadn't been given to you from above. The authority that Pilate had, any authority that Pilate had, came from God. And it could be taken away in a moment. Pilate, in that moment, could be struck down with a heart attack. See, I, I learned about this time, this is August the 1st, about this time, July 31st, August the 1st of 1989, something that I knew in my head, I learned to be the truth, because that's when Katie was about two days old, and she was about to have her third surgery, and they told us that she might not live through it. And I realized that, that our daughter's life was in, in God's hands, and he didn't have to take her next breath from her. He just didn't have to give it to her. And I believe that I learned a principle that day that every single breath I take is a gift from God. Every moment, every hour, every day. God doesn't have to take your life. We, we talk about that. Oh, he took him home. He took him home, but God didn't necessarily take his life. He just chose not to give him another day on this earth. I went out to visit with my brother who is... Uh, 29 years, Austin police officer, and his, one of his best friends who just retired after 25 and a half years. And when we visited Thursday night, they both shook up a little bit because there was an, a young man, Officer Taylor, you may have seen the story about him, who uh, was on the way to a call and was in a, a horrible auto accident just this week uh, and was in the hospital, but he was declared brain dead and, and uh, he was going to pass away and leave behind a wife and five children. Well, I can assure you that that mom and five kids, when they got up that day, did not know that daddy wasn't coming home. The truth is, none of us do. The life that we have, the breath that we have, the, the days that we have, the hope that we have are gifts from God. The authority, whatever authority, whatever power you think you have, it's a gift from God, and it can be taken at any moment. There is one king. There is one ruler who has all authority over life and death, and his name is Jesus. He is the king of kings and lord of lords, and no one has power over him. Pilate didn't understand that, but Pilate did understand that he had somebody before him that was different, and he was going to do everything he could to release him. And yet, ultimately, Pilate gave in to the king of expedience. He chose to do not what was right, what was easy. He chose to do, make a decision not based on truth, but based on what would appease those who were before him. And see, that, that brings us to my third point, and this is the question that I posed to myself as I was working through this message, and I posed to you today, who is your king, or what is your king? For some of us, 
What drives our lives, what motivates our lives, our king, so to speak, the ruler of our life is our future, our hopes, our dreams, what we have out there before us. And maybe it's not just for us. Maybe it's a dream or a hope that we strive for and we push for, for our children or for our grandchildren. It's not a bad thing to have hopes and dreams, but if that is what drives your life, that becomes the the ruling authority in your life instead of Christ and his word, you're headed down the wrong path. I heard one lady this week on, on talk radio who declared that, that what brought meaning to her life was the fight for climate change. That's what brought me, that's what gave meaning to her life was that she was fighting against global climate change. And I thought, how short-sighted if that's what brings meaning to your life. But you know what? Oftentimes, we, we gravitate to those causes. And maybe it's a positive cause. Maybe it's a good cause. Maybe, maybe you're fighting for, for cancer awareness or breast cancer awareness. That's not a bad cause. But if that's what brings meaning to your life, you're missing out on the greatest opportunity you have for eternal life because everything else outside of Christ is short-sighted and temporary. There's people today who, who the greatest meaning to their life is brought in this fight for, for racial justice, which is a, a good thing. But if that's the greatest good that you fight for, you're missing out on what God has for you. But see, some of us, it's not a cause. Some of us, what drives our life is financial security. We, we, this is illustrated sometimes, and, and believe me, I understand, I see pastors do this too. But as a pastor who's made the decision that I, I want to be where God's called me, not where I get paid the most or be at the biggest church or whatever. I, I want to be where God's called me. I made that decision as a young man. I, I know that that's not true for everybody, but, but you'll see people that in the church who will, who will declare that, that Jesus is my Lord, and they get a new job offer in another, con- another state, and they up and move without consulting Jesus. Because if he's made me a part of a church family, maybe, maybe that ought to have some influence. Well, maybe God is moving me to another place where I can make more money. But just because there's more money, that does not necessarily mean it's God's call. Unless your Lord is financial security. You see what I mean? If your king is financial security, then you're going to make a decision based on what financially fits. Now, some of us are driven by the, the drive to experience. You hear a, a reference to someone's bucket list. These are the great experiences that they want to they check off before they pass away, before they leave this world. And so their, their life is going to be driven by great experiences. And they want to climb the highest mount, mountain, jump out of the airplane, you know, go wherever. Uh, that's, none of, nothing's bad about living life to its fullest. But if that becomes the Lord of your life... If that's what's driving you, that's what's most important to you, then Jesus isn't your king. Your experiences are. For some, it's just day-to-day pleasure. What, does it, what makes me feel good today? Well, how often does that lead to broken marriages and destroyed lives? For some, it's expediency. I believe that's what it was for Pilate. Some of us just want peace. <laughs> and we'll just do whatever leads to the easy way out. And so we allow expediency to run our lives. Expediency is our king. I think that these are probably six that we all identify with at some, at some point or 
other. There's some of us that just want peace. <laughs> we'll get out of a situation whether it's God's will or not because we want to take the easy road. Some of us, are, 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 we struggle and, uh, of wanting to, to enjoy that great experience. Some of us are looking forward to that time of pleasure. But when those things run our lives, that becomes king. That becomes Lord. When there really ought to only be one. And you see it here in verse uh, 15 and 16. And this is, amazes me. Because no self-respecting Jew under the control of the Roman government in that time would have said what these guys said. But Pilate tells them, here's your king. They shall take him away, take him away, crucify him. Well, that's no surprise. They already want him crucified. He says, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. These men who declared Yahweh as God gave in to expediency, gave in to their, their bloodthirst, and declared, we have no king but Caesar. They denied the God of the Exodus. They denied the God of their, their, their forefathers. They denied the God who they knew to be or who they proclaimed to be, the Lord of Lords. They denied him to declare Caesar is our king. Who are we today claiming is our king? I think we'll, some of us buy into political expediency, social expediency, whatever it happens to be. And we'll allow our lives to be more centered around whether we're, we have a, a, a donkey or, or an a elephant that we're connected to in a political party than we are to Jesus. So the question is, are we going to surrender that to the authority of the cross? Or are we going to surrender Jesus and say, the Republicans are my king or the Democrats are my king in how we live out our life? Here's the bottom line. There's an incredible passage where the Apostle Paul speaks to Timothy about this. Late in his first letter to Timothy, which is near the end of his life, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, Paul writes this to his young protege, young man coming up in the ministry. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all and of Christ Jesus who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. Paul tells Timothy, Hold on to what's eternal. All of those other things I listed, pleasure is fleeting. Experiences are fleeting. Financial security comes and goes. And it will end with the grave. Your hopes and dreams for this world, no matter whether you achieve them all or not, one day won't matter when you stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the only one that matters. And so the question that I have, is Jesus your king? 
If he is your king, you'll spend eternity in his eternal kingdom. That's the bottom line. If you're willing to confess him as king and Lord of your life, you'll stand before him for all of eternity. You'll, you'll dwell in his eternal kingdom, and he is the one and only who is eternal. But if you deny his kingship in your life, and you deny his lordship in your life, you'll not only miss out on his great sacrifice for your sin that you could be cleansed, you'll miss out on his victory over death that we're going to talk about in a couple weeks when he came back up out of the grave. That, by the way, Isaiah predicted back in Isaiah 53 when he says that, that after his anguish he will see light. 750 years before, not only did he predict, predict the beatings and the crucifixion, he predicted the resurrection. But if you refuse to confess Christ as king and Lord of your life, you'll miss out on the sacrifice for your sins, his victory over death, and you'll miss out on hope of eternal life. The only one who offers forgiveness, victory over death, and eternal life is the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus himself. Now, I want to I offer two invitations, to, so to speak. First is this. If you have never Confess Christ as your king, as your savior. I plead with you, don't put that off. Because just as I said earlier, your next breath is not guaranteed. You might live another 20 years. You might think that I'm going to wait until 12 o'clock. I'm going to wait until just before my life ticks off. Then I'm going to accept Jesus. I'm afraid far too many people that waited until the last hour died at 1030. You don't know how many days the Lord has given you. So I plead with you, not just for eternity, but, but for your life's sake. Life is so much better when it's lived by faith in Christ. But church, there's, there's some of us who we would say that Jesus is king of most. But you know that there's an area of your life that you're holding control over. And the reality is, if he's not king of all, he's really king of none. Because you're getting to make decisions on what he's king over. I plead with you, if you know there's an area of your life where you have not given God full control, today you surrender that control to him. You may need to just come to the altar and pray. You don't need to talk to me about it. That's between you and God. But I'd, I'd plead with you to surrender your heart, your soul completely over to the one who is the king of kings, who was the king of kings and forever will be the king of kings, whether you confess it or not. Jesus is Lord. There's going to come a day when all will confess it. But whether you do that today or not, that's up to you. But if you don't know for sure, if you've never made that commitment to follow Christ as your Lord, to declare him as your king, I plead with you, come talk to me or Nathan. We'll be up here waiting for you or get a hold of us after the service. I plead with you, don't let it go past today. Find out what it means to follow Christ, to be obedient to him, that you become a part of his kingdom. Those who deny him will never see eternal life. He makes that clear. Those who profess him and follow him, it's a completely different story. No matter what happens to you on this earth, you have a future and a hope because of Him. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior 
equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.